Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Death is a new digital short in three parts, based on a poem by the great American Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work of the same name. Composer Taishan Sori crafts a breathtaking, reflective musical setting, and filmmaker Nadia Hallgren creates a visual story that gives a glimpse into the creative process of both the composer and poet, and addresses the Black experience in America. In this behind-the-curtain conversation, Dr. Muriel McClendon, Associate Professor for History at UCLA, speaks with Dr. Sori and Ms. Hallgren, discussing how the project originated and how its poetry, music, and image resonate together. The digital short Death premiered on February 19, 2021, and can be accessed for free on LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org. It is a pleasure for me to be here and to start this incredibly uh, interesting conversation. How did this project get started? I'd love to start. Uh, Tyshawn, I think there's a part of the story that you don't know. So I'd love to tell my part and then <laughs> and then hear uh, Dr. Sori's. My name is Nadia Holgren and I'm a documentary filmmaker. For me, the way this project started was actually a few months before Tyshawn even I had connected in any way. I had been talking to my co-director, Jamie James Medina, and we were just you know, those conversations you have of if there's anyone in the world that you might want to collaborate with one day. And, you know, Tyshawn's name came up. Interesting ways the universe works, but, you know, the conversation, you know, we were talking about how exciting Tyshawn's work is and the genius that he is and kind of just went on. Uh, I think it was just maybe a month or so later that I got a email from the LA Opera director, Christopher Kolsch, that said, we're working with composer Dr. Taishon Sori on an opera and we're making films to accompany the operas this season because of the pandemic and we can't have any in-person um, concerts and Dr. Sori is interested in possibly working with you. That was just such an exciting moment for me because, uh, you know, again, that idea was put out there and they, and they came back a lot faster than ideas usually come back. It was definitely kind of the same situation for me as well uh, with Nadia because LA Opera had contacted me to um, work on some piece with them um, involving film and things like that. And they sent me a list of filmmakers and Nadia's was the first thing I saw. I didn't even look through anything else because I was just so riveted by, you know, all the work you've done and um, the career that you've had as a filmmaker and all of that stuff. And immediately I decided right away, or Nadia is the person I really want to work with on this project. Because I felt that, you know, the work that you would do would work so well with how I, with how I work also. I mean, like, it seems like everything you've done, you've put so much time into it. And you really, um, you really pay great attention to detail uh, with the subjects you're dealing with. And also with, you know, and like, I, I just, I just knew that somehow, you know, this, this would work really well. And so I'm, I, it was really a fortuitous opportunity, I think, you know, for both of us to get together and work on this together. Thank you. It's such a huge honor for you to, to say that. And, and so grateful that you appreciate my work and, you know, same, same with you. So it, it feels like something that was, that was meant to be. Definitely. You know, I hope to someday do more things, you know, in some capacity. I think it would be awesome. I'm glad you say that because uh, I already, <laughs> the wheels have been spinning in my head about that. So uh, we, we definitely will. 
So this sounds like that this was a great creative partnership from the start. So how did you get to Paul Lawrence Dunbar? Maybe you could say a little bit, uh, each of you could say a little bit about him for those who aren't familiar with him and his work. Tyshawn, you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I had been somewhat familiar with Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work in elementary school, but only in recent years, like have I begun sort of revisiting his work. And especially nowadays, I mean, I can relate to it because if you look at some of the themes that Paul Lawrence Dunbar covers, specifically in lyrics of love and laughter, I mean, like, you know, he addresses a lot of universal themes, but at the same time, somehow, you know, a lot of these themes that he's exploring in his work seem more relevant to us, you know, as Black people. So somehow death really spoke to me. First of all, I should say for practical reasons, I chose death because it was uh, one of his shorter works and I only had a certain amount of time to get a piece ready. So, you know, I was only asked to write a piece that's somewhere in the area of three to five minutes or something like that. This poem really spoke to me. And, you know, just in light of what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic and how, you know, it's also affected Blacks in America. Death is something that, you know, we Black people know all too well, um, especially in the present time. When you look at the increased frequencies of unfortunate murders of unarmed Blacks and the injustices that were, you know, happening, you know, especially over the last decade, I can even say specifically during 2020, I mean, and just, you know, what was going on there how the frequencies in these murders uh, kept increasing. And of course, you know, this is among only one of several social ills that we continue to deal with on a daily basis. So uh, death was a work that spoke to me also because I see creating work like this as being an extension of a lot of the work that I've done before in this realm. Uh, pieces like Cycles of My Being, for example, for the Tanner Lawrence Brownlee, Terrence Hayes and myself, where we talk about black male subjectivity and um, what it's like to live a life of precarity every day, you know, a life of feeling like, you know, I mean, yes, you're living a life, but at the same time, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, given, you know, sometimes the color of your skin or your background or where, what city you live in. I mean, all of these different things that we talk about, you know, in, in, in that, in that piece of music in particular. And so, I felt that since I began doing work on Cycles of My Being, you know, from there, it seemed like every piece of music that I wrote after that was somehow informed, you know, by that experience of collaborating a lot with Terrence Hayes and Lawrence Brownlee on these very subjects, you know, what it's like to live a life of precarity, you know, during the, during the Trump era, I should say, uh, since that was a subject that was heavy at the time that we started covering it. And so death, you know, I would say is definitely a logical extension of the work that I've been doing in this realm. Yeah, so I think for me, the very first time that Tyshawn and I connected, I remember asking Tyshawn, oh, so, you know, what, what are you thinking about, you know, what are some of your ideas? And he said, I've been thinking a lot about reconstruction. And I said, that's so interesting because I have too. And I had just finished making Becoming the Michelle Obama documentary right when the lockdown happened. And I had gotten a Ta-Nehisi Coates book, We Were Eight Years in Power, to do research for that film. And I never got a chance to read it. And so now that I had time, I had this book just sitting on my desk. And I was like, I'm going to read this book cover to cover. I'm going to devote two hours a day and just sit here and read this book. 
the title itself, We Were Eight Years in Power, is speaking to the Reconstruction era and the way that ta sets up the book at the beginning of the introduction is he talks about Reconstruction and there's, you know, of course, a striking similarity to the eight years of the Reconstruction era and the eight years of the Obama administration, where after both of those eight years, respectively, white supremacists felt a very particular threat in the advancement of people of color. And there was a strike back to that. There was a backlash. And right in the moment when Taishon and I had spoke, we were at the height of the George Floyd protests, the discovery of the Breonna Taylor tragedy and Ahmaud Arbery. And so Taishon and I are both sitting in our homes, looking at what's happening in the world, thinking about the construction years and how it relates to the time that we were sitting in right in that moment. And then as Taishon just mentioned, as he was talking about the precarity of his life, and I'm thinking about the same thing about my own life, you know, I think it was just a complete reinforcement of ideas and feelings that we were both feeling having not even, you know, ever met before. And I think in that moment, we knew we can make something special that reflected, you know, these things that we were going through uh, in the present. And we spoke about death and, you know, all the ways that Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem was the same feelings we were feeling every day when we woke up in the morning or in the middle of the night especially during that time where I think there was a lot of anxiety. It just felt like he had the experience then of exactly what, like Tyshawn said, what we're experiencing right now. So just all those ideas that came together really propelled us to come together and and make something. Does anybody want to give a little background about Paul Lawrence Dunbar for those who might not be familiar with his life and his work? Paul Lawrence Dunbar was born during Reconstruction and he was a brilliant poet and was quite successful as a poet for his time. The home that is the opening shot of Death, the film, was filmed in the actual poor Lawrence Dunbar house in Dayton, Ohio, which is now a museum and has been preserved. He had gained a considerable amount of wealth, again, for a Black man at that time, where he purchased a home for himself and his mother. And that was such a huge point of pride for him and her as well. Unfortunately, he passed away quite young. He got sick and he died before his mother died. But um, I think, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was also living, from my perspective, in this interesting time as a successful Black man during a particular point in history where he, highly educated, probably moved through these certain types of worlds that allowed him some freedom and access to capital. But was a Black man post-Reconstruction nonetheless. And I think the convergence of these worlds is, is it's a little schizophrenic, you know? It's quite schizophrenic. And I think that's something that Taishan and I also talked about ourselves in that, you know, in certain rooms or spaces, we are, we're artists, we're respected, we are listened to, we have a voice. But then I could walk down the street and go to the bodega and I like that that just all goes out the window, right? Like nobody cares. Not not that anyone should be treated differently because of that, but it's also just a strange way to move through the world. And I think that Paul Lawrence Dunbar also may have had similar experiences in that way. Yeah, I mean, all of that, you know, I mean, and um, and you know, he's he's left 
such a legacy behind and, and his literary style even, you know, is also worth noting, like how colorful and how conversational Paul Lawrence Dunbar's language tends to be, you know, with this sort of this really brilliant uh, rhetorical structure. And, you know, of course, a lot of his work was written in conventional language, English, but he was also known for using black dialect, you know, for, for some of it, as well as like a lot of regional dialects. And so um, it's very interesting, you know, seeing work that's presented both in standard English and in dialect, you know, which I, which I think is really interesting. I mean, of course, you know, he was very active in the civil rights movement during his time. He's just influenced, you know, so many other writers, lyricists and composers and people like that, you know, particularly as, as part of the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, a lot of his work has had a lot of importance then. Wim Grant Still, for instance, had used excerpts from four dialect poems that Dunbar had written for his Afro-American symphony. And so I think that that was a really great work. And of course, you know, the next year that it premiered, it was the first symphony ever by a black composer to be performed by a major orchestra. And I'm also thinking of Maya Angelou's work following that period. You know, um, I'm thinking about the title um, of her autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which is uh, titled from a line in the famous Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, Sympathy, uh, which I think is a great work. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, so-called jazz musicians and composers and people like that, I mean, they too were very familiar with much of um, Dunbar's work. There's so much to say about it, but yeah, I mean, this is sort of a general background of um, his major contribution um, in the in, in literature. Great, thanks. Now, could you take us deeper into the work that you've done and sort of talk about what you've done and maybe help those of us on the outside think about how we might approach it? What were your goals? Things like that. So for me, um, personally, a lot of the work that I do deals with very serious topics, and it deals with things concerning um, our life experiences, because I feel that that's what all music should be, uh, based on um, actual life experiences, as well as those of um, our culture and those of, um, you know, just in general, like things that are, what our relationship is to what those experiences are in the world. I guess the way that I chose to deal with the text I mean, my music tends to have a very somber, very dark character to it. But at the same time, I mean, I wanted to create a situation where I wouldn't merely set the texts to music, but rather, you know, have the music and the text both support each other in equal ways. Whenever I would read these lines, you know, I just try to imagine myself, you know, what does this line sound like? I mean, even from an instrumental point of view, like let's say if you take the words, if you take the words away, you know, from the music, would it would it still sound like what those lines say, you know? And so um, that's kind of the approach that I generally take with music like this, no matter who the poet is and no matter what era, which is from, I try to make it relevant to today, you know, to, I, I try to make the musical language relevant to, to today and not put myself in a position where the music would sound, you know, cutesy or something like that. That's not really <laughs> the way I like to go about working. Um, and so it's uh, so it's a very serious setting. And um, I set out to work. I contacted Amanda Lynn Bottoms because she was somebody uh, who I've also wanted to work with for a very long time. We have a lot of mutual colleagues in the world of opera. And so I contacted her as well and asked that she sing the piece because I was hearing her voice in the composition. Like generally, anytime I write for anybody, I, I like to do research 
and I like to look into the work they've done before I decide to work with them or work for them. After all, I mean, who you work with is is um, also a major compositional step um, when it comes to putting together something like this. So, um, so I contacted Amanda Lynn Bottoms, and and she had agreed to do it, and I decided to work on the music, and I spent maybe maybe about a week just reading it, just reading the four lines and really internalizing them uh, to the point where I can sit down and, you know, over the course of a couple of days, uh, write the piece and have it done. And, um, and we recorded the piece. Uh, they recorded the piece in New York. We did a um, remote recording session. I was here in Philadelphia and Amanda Lynn Bottoms and Howard Watkins were both in New York and they recorded the music and uh, we had it mixed and mastered right away. And then we gave that stuff to Nadia. And um, Nadia then subsequently, you know, had a really great, brilliant idea and contacted me and asked me if, you know, is there some instrumental version um, that doesn't have the words in it? And there was no such version. So then I ended up sitting down at the piano and creating um, an instrumental version for, for her to use, you know, for whatever idea she wanted to use and um and so from there um i guess over the course of a few weeks or something like that i ended up getting the um getting the penultimate cut of uh nadia's film um uh, that accompanied it and i was just absolutely thrilled by what i what i saw but the thing is, is i'm not much of a talker <laughs> so uh so I, I wanted to edit some parts of my talking out of it because I, I, I'm, a, I'm the type of person who likes to let the music do the talking. Um, and the text, you know, the text in and of itself, you know, it says so much in the music, like I you know, hope also says about as much. And um, like, I just wanted the music to do the talking. And, um, and I mean, of course, Nadia gets it, you know, like totally got it. And, uh, and then we came up with the final cut few days later and that's what resulted in the piece. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sori, uh, for allowing us to film you too. And I, I totally understand when you say you're not much of a talker because I feel like I'm not either. Uh, and that's why I'm always behind the camera. So, <laughs> but then I'm always asking people, a lot of people to talk in front of the camera. Um, I think this was such an interesting challenge to figure out how to visualize a poem bring in opera and also who Taishon is as a person and how that contributes to the work that he makes. I think the goal was to make this feel approachable and hopefully also introduce new audiences to opera and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Taishon. You know, so a lot of the thinking was how, how can we achieve all these things at one time? So the way we decided to approach it was, you know, from researching Paul Lawrence Dunbar, learning that his home still existed in, in Dayton, Ohio, we reached out to the museum and we asked them if they would uh, allow us to film there. And they ge very generously said yes. And we're actually quite excited about it because they also want more people to know about Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So we planned a trip there and we, we filmed and it was, it was incredible. Being in that house, you feel Dunbar's presence there still. And it's incredible. And, and I hope that that, you know, the idea was to try to help that come across in, in the film. And then we went and we filmed with, with Taishan and, um, you know, just to really be with Taishan as he, in his creative process 
and also to again to show visually all these these threads of how something like this comes together it's almost this intergenerational collaboration too between Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Tyshawn, and myself. And so it, you know, it was kind of like all these mediums came together to, to tell the story, which was really exciting of how can we do this? And then the idea of the birds was, you know, crows and death and how that's a symbolism of death, but there's also so much beauty in nature and this, this process of that. And I think Black joy and Black grief is something that we always see interconnected. And part of the presence of the crows was to symbolize that in, in some way. And speaking of which, I mean, as I sort of touched on a little bit earlier, Black grief is sort of a, um, sort of a central area um, in the work that I do, especially in vocal music. And I, mean, I hope it's in some way reflective in my instrumental music as well, but in all of my vocal music, um, you know, a lot of these topics that address Black grief and such, um, that does tend to be a central feature in the work. And I mean, it definitely comes across in the piece, but at the same time, I mean, there is a lot of hope that's there um, as well in the piece. And, you know, as, as we said before, we wanted to make something that was also accessible. And um, I didn't want to make it too heavy handed to the point where people wouldn't want to listen to it. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, so I just wanted to clarify that, that, that point, but, uh, but that's basically it. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when you were just talking, you were talking about the intergenerational nature of this. And as I was watching the film, one of the things I was thinking about, I have a niece and three nephews who are in their twenties. I thought this is something I would most definitely want to introduce them to you and do you have any particular hopes or ideas about um, about how this film um, might be presented to you know a younger generation and what they might take from this? Because I was really excited about this. Well, I definitely hope that this film can reach younger audiences. I think it's an opportunity to really immerse oneself into I, I think uh, various layers of Black culture and expression and you know, young people are, that that's what it's all about, right? It's about culture and expression and, you know, how they move through the world and how they exist in the world and their connection to their voice. And I think that if there could be a way that they can see themselves as well in this piece of death and reflect on what, what it is and what it means, I think that could be a great, just a, like a jumping jumping off point for more more thought. I mean, and, and all the same for um, any musician or composer, to address, you know, a lot of what these abstract things that we talk about and things that we hear about, you know, um, in the world, things like freedom, things like death, things like, um, you know, the, the coming to oneself, all of these different things, to really address the question of what do these things sound like? You know, I was confronted with this question um, about 10 years ago by the brilliant um, scholar, musicologist, trombonist, pioneer in electronic music, uh, George Lewis, um, incredible uh, composer and uh, researcher in all of these fields. And, um, and I had presented some music and I had said something about freedom and, you know, talking about grief and stuff like that. And he was like, well, what does that sound like? I mean, why don't you write that? <laughs> you know, like, why don't you write that down? And um, I hope that what people take away from this is to, you know, really, you know, if these are questions that are essential to their work, 
you know, how, how, how can you express that through sound? How can you communicate? How can you get the listener to um, experience this feelingful engagement with literature and with film all at once, like this sort of uh, inter intermedia um, situation? Like, how, how would you be able to express that, you know? And um, that, that would be my hope. And of course, you know, I want more people to become familiar and recognize, you know, also Paul Lawrence Dunbar's lesser known uh, works and death, of course, is one of them. And um, yeah, I, I just hope that it will inspire the listener to become more aware of his brilliance and, um, and aware of the many different possible ways in which, you know, his work could be um, used, you know, given whatever field uh, one is in, you know, and for me, I feel that as a black artist, my responsibility is to communicate our experiences out there. And I want to use my medium as a platform to be able to express um, all of these, all of these matters, you know, through sound as much as I can. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for your time today. This has been an incredibly stimulating conversation and I cannot wait to see what each of you and perhaps what the two of you do together next. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful Thank talking you. about death and Tyshawn, it's great to see you again. Dr. Muriel, it's wonderful to meet you and thank you for your fantastic question. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.